Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Thanks so much for joining us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Brian Stuskin. Welcome to summer. This past week, of course, we officially kicked off the summer season with the solstice on Wednesday. Coming up on today's broadcast, we'll be catching up with Steve Melvin to discuss some in-season irrigation tips. Of course, lots of pivots are running and irrigation pipe is being laid out in the fields this time of year. Plus, we'll take a deep dive when it comes to the cattle markets with UNL's Elliot Dennis. We'll get to both of those stories coming up here in a moment, but first. On last week's show, we joined you from North Platte, Nebraska for Nebraska Land Days. While out in the area, our crew had the chance to stop by the 2023 TAPS Summer Field Day. Many of the TAPS, or Testing Ag Performance Solutions, program participants were on hand for a day to take in some live demos and hands-on learning opportunities. The day kicked off with educators, participants, sponsors, and TAPS partners meeting at the West Central Research, Extension, and Education Center in North Platte. The event featured educational competitions such as Agronomic Olympics and guest speakers. While planning for the summer competition, it was a great opportunity for participants to come together and engage in some peer-to-peer -peer learning opportunities. It's kind of our June event. It's an opportunity to have our participants and other producers come in, uh, kind of have some fun. We played Jeopardy earlier today, set some siphon tubes, had a few more challenges, maybe help them learn a little bit, but it, it's more about enjoyment, getting to know each other, kind of building those bonds so we can develop a peer-to-peer -peer learning. So farmers learn from farmers or the industry or the NRCS or NRDs, you know, people are here as well. So kind of building those relationships so that we can have learning from each other. This competition is an opportunity for people who are actively involved in a farming operation to give them a chance to try out some new practices and technology before making the investment for their own operation. Just being able to try different things and experiment on a where there's not a lot of risk, where you don't have to risk it on your own farm, having that opportunity to do that. Um, it's, it's more of a ground truth thing, I guess, for me more than anything. Just, okay, I do it on my farm full scale. What, how does it react in this environment? And different, different soil types, actually different row width also. So a different growing environment that I can experience. Even for those not running a farm, they're welcome to join in on the competition. NTV News' farm director, Steve White, tells us that joining this competition has given him a new appreciation for the decisions that ag producers need to go through on a daily basis. I'm out there telling farmer stories all the time, getting out and doing, talking about what they're doing, but this is a chance for me to kind of live in their shoes, take some of the risk out of it. I don't, I don't have any money on the line. It doesn't matter if I screw up, but I can learn. And so I can kind of understand my audience a little bit better by making some of those ma management decisions along the way. If you'd like to learn more about the TAPS competition, you're encouraged to visit their website at taps.unl.edu. You can also go to that website to stay up to date on their various events throughout the year. Speaking of field days, we'd like to remind you of next week's Weed Management Field Day taking place at the South Central Ag Lab near Clay Center, Nebraska. That event will begin with registration and rolls at 8.30 and field demonstrations set to begin at 9 a.m. For more information, you're encouraged to reach out to Amit Jala. You'll find his information there at the bottom of your screen now. 
Also happening earlier this week, Nebraska's congressional delegation made their way to the University of Nebraska's East Campus in order to discuss the upcoming farm bill and get a closer look at research and innovations being developed right in the Cornhusker State that'll help bolster the ag community worldwide. The Vice Chancellor of UNL's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources was on hand to explain how research at UNL is tied to the upcoming farm bill. Yeah, so research is uh, it's important. It's um, not it's discretionary funding, so it's not mandatory. So right out, it gets shrunk into that 20% that's not mandatory. And then in there, of course, we have uh, hatch funding. So the Hatch Act in 1887, which created this campus, right, that provides us Oh, with about five and a half million of federal dollars every year that then gets matched by state funding. Uh, also on the research side are the competitive grants program through AFRI. It's the main competitive grant program. It's authorized at 700 million, but only appropriated at 270 million. So how the authorization bill language and how the appropriations annual cycle works is, you know, it's a lot of sausage making. But I think every five years, the magic of the authorizing bill conversation, whether we see the kind of increases or not in authorization levels, really gives us a chance to talk to the producers, the, the folks on the ground to say what's important, and for us to hear that to really inform what our research program of the future looks like. Vice Chancellor Bain went on to explain that he believes the latest version of the Farm Bill, as well as the appropriations cycle, is a good opportunity to get additional funding for a proposed U.S. Department of Agriculture research facility to be located at Nebraska Innovation Campus in Lincoln. Coming up next week, we'll hear more about that visit with the delegation themselves. Out in the panhandle of Nebraska, a native insect is causing damage during the growing season in wheat. Wheat stem softly is widespread for wheat growers in the Panhandle and beyond. A team, though, at the High Plains Ag Lab near Cindy, Sydney, continues to research that pest with the hopes of finding some relief in the future. Earlier this month, they had the opportunity to travel out to Sydney to learn more about the research that's currently underway. The wheat stem softly is a native insect that naturally infests many cool season grasses. However, it prefers one cool season grass the most, wheat. Unfortunately, wheat acres are the single most desirable feature in the western landscapes that attract and encourage the production of a thriving community of wheat stem sawflies. It has become a big issue facing wheat growers in the Panhandle region. Yeah, so we're standing here next to one of our sawfly trials. You know, sawfly is one of our, uh, well, it's our primary pest and issue that we are facing right now with our wheat production acres in, in, in western Nebraska. And so, um, being that it's the number one issue that our growers are facing, it's, it's, uh, it's the number one priority for us as researchers to be out here and uh, trying to solve this problem. From the panhandle of Nebraska to Colorado, Kansas, the Dakotas, and Montana, wheat stem softly is becoming a challenge as it girdles the stem, which can then knock the wheat crop to the ground. The number one issue that, that the growers complain about is the uh, lodging that, uh, that uh, happens at wheat harvest. This pest will, uh, it, it uh, lays an egg in the wheat right now at this time of year. Um, that that uh, egg will hatch and that, uh, that uh, larvae will burrow down to the base of the, the uh, wheat plant and then it will girdle that plant and it'll make it really easy for it to, lo to uh, lodge about the time harvest comes around. So it's not uncommon uh, out in this region to see a lot of wheat fields that close to harvest are especially around the borders of the field to be laying flat on the ground and which makes it very hard for harvest and makes it 
uh, often we see a yield loss because of that. Creech says there is no silver bullet when it comes to management. There is no insecticide that is widely effective and no current varieties of wheat hold up against that pest. At the research site near Sydney, a University of Nebraska team is working to learn more about wheat stem sawfly as well as its economic impact. Just the mere presence of that wheat stem sawfly inside the plant and that larvae burrowing down and chewing on the inside of the plant, uh, we found that that's going to cause a yield reduction, just the fact that it's there, even if it doesn't lodge. And so this project here behind me is looking at that specific question where we have these exclusion cages set up to keep the wheat stem sawfly out of certain areas. Um, here in a couple of weeks when the sawfly goes away, we will remove these, these cages and we will look at uh, and, and compare the, the wheat yield between an infested plot with an uninfested plot to truly understand what that yield reduction was because uh, you know these plots are adjacent one another, they've had the same rainfall, they're the same varieties and we want to see what that is. But we also have different wheat varieties here. You know, the kind of the easy solution is uh, to grow a wheat stem uh, or a wheat variety that has either a semi-solid stem or a solid stem, and those tend to stand up a little bit better to sawfly. Um, however, we also think that there's gonna be a yield reduction in those uh, if they are infested. And so we have hollow stem, semi-solid, and solid stem wheat varieties here in these cages, so we can make those comparisons. Building on that point, Creech says the best solution right now is to create new varieties of wheat that might be more tolerant to wheat stem softly. The UNL team is working closely with some surrounding states to help identify a potential solution for wheat growers. Shifting now over to the markets, this week we are focusing in on the cattle side of things. UNL Livestock Marketing and Risk Management's economist Elliot Dennis joined us earlier this week. It's been a bullish market for both live and feeder cattle as they remain near all-time highs in terms of the futures market. Here's my conversation with Elliot. I know you recently spoke at uh, Sandhills Cattle Convention meeting. I'm sure they were picking your brain about your thoughts of the current market. So let's do the same here and get your thoughts when it comes to live and feeder cattle. What are you seeing out there? Yeah, really just a lot of volatility right now in the live cattle market and the feeder cattle market. When we think about where those prices have historically been, we've been pretty much in an upward trend for the last you know six to seven months. Uh, now the corn market has started to change and we even look at the price spreads within the day. Those have significantly jumped. As we start to go down, ultimately what that means is more volatility, higher prices if we're thinking about uh, putting in those price floors. Uh, and really what we have to see is where the corn market's going to go. It was kind of trending lower. It's jumped up almost 30 cents. And so that's put a lot of downward pressure on the feeder cattle uh, prices. Supply on the feeder cattle and the fed cattle prices still says that there's price support to go up but I think people are trying to sort through where the corn market's gonna to go to try to determine what they're willing to pay for products right now. You look at the charts, both live and feeder cattle, you can kind of pick one date early in June where it seems like we saw the high in both live and feeder cattle. Is this something, you, you bring up the drought conditions rallying uh, the corn and soybean markets, but is, it, is this a seasonal trend? We start to see a drop off toward the, the late end of June that the cattle markets might be following as well? I think on the future side, we're seeing some of that. On the cash side, uh, I think we've, we've really seen that rally a couple weeks early. If you look at particularly the seven to 900 pound uh, steers that are sold in Nebraska, we tend to have a, a pretty much a big bump at the end of the summer. We have really experienced that same trend except a few weeks early. And so we're talking about where those cash prices could be heading. 
I think we've experienced a lot of those trends, but just a little bit earlier in the season. The patterns are still the same. Uh, now, whether we continue to follow that same pattern or we go down, I think we're pretty much level at where we're at. Seems like there's a lot of emphasis put on, you, you and I were talking about this uh, before you hit the record button today, there's a lot of emphasis put on the holidays throughout the summer. These are the big grilling holidays. We had Memorial Day, Father's Day just this past weekend. Hope you got a chance to grill yourself, mm -hmm. Elliot. But yeah. uh, when we look at, at that, uh, and it comes to beef demand, there's a lot of emphasis put on that. What, what are you tracking, though, when it comes to data to, to see if beef demand is still there? Well, I think the meat demand monitor from Kansas State University is one of the premier sources for that. That's funded by checkoff dollars, so everyone has access to it. Data is freely available. And really what that shows us is what consumers are willingness, willing to pay each month and by state for different products. So when we look at ribeyes, at food service, at home, and that really shows us kind of where demand is at and what they're willing to pay. And what we've seen is that consumer demand is starting to soften uh, really when we talk about it's coming off all-time highs and so if, while it's softening it's not collapsing uh, that's what I'm watching uh, pretty aggressively and really when we talk about where inflation's continuing to go uh, and where that debt level is at that's of a concern Con consumer debts continuing to rise we still have inflation which ultimately means that consumers have less money in their pockets as far as personal income to spend on Expensive products like beef. Like beef. Mm -hmm. Certainly keep an eye on that. Something else uh, a lot of people are tracking month-to-month -month herd rebuilding. Yeah. What's the best data that you're looking at on that front? Yeah, so I look at really two things. Heifer slaughter gives us animals that have already been made, purchases by feedlots. Uh, heifer slaughter is still at pretty much what it was in 2022, which means there's still a lot of heifer slaughter being uh, happening. We look at heifer placements into feed yards, that's still high. We're still at about 38-39% on heifer. That's a quarterly report that happens by USDA as part of the cattle on feed report. So all those who participated in that, thank you. Uh, and then we also look at auction sales for cattle that are under 600 pounds and over 600 pounds that are heifers that are going through. We still have quite a bit of, of, of heifers going through that market. Which, basically suggests that in the past, in the, in the current, and in the future, we should still see large heifers on feed, which ultimately means herd rebuilding is not happening in this year, and definitely uh, we're starting to question whether it will happen even starting in the beginning of 2024. Yeah, you and I talked about that last time you were on the show. It takes a while to rebuild the cattle supply, so yeah. that's certainly a number we'll keep track of. Walmart announced recently they're going to be uh, expanding, opening a packing facility down in Kansas. What are the details there, Elliot? Yeah, I think it's just one of their first steps, again, into the kind of the state cutting in uh, sector. When we talk about where Walmart is actually going, whether they're going into the food service, high-value uh, tablecloth, I think they're trying to see how can we take this high-value product that's coming from sustainable beef. They're probably able to track a lot of their sustainability goals with it. How do they create more value and deliver that to their products? I think it's going to be an interesting development. The sustainable beef is not likely to fully uh, staff that entire steak cutting warehouse, but uh, whether they're going to be out in the market purchasing those primos, uh, I think less to be seen. Okay, I began by saying you were at a uh, cattle convention of sorts, uh, getting the feeling of some Sandhill ranchers out there. What, what were their takes? 30 seconds or so here. I think they're very positive. I mean, a lot of the sale barns that were happening there was extremely high prices. I was even surprised at high, how high those prices were 
just a lot of optimism in the market. I think that's you know a good thing given where we've been at. I think we just need to be looking forward as we think about things that could potentially soften those prices and just once again always be proactive on the risk management aspect. Thanks again to Elliot for joining us in the studio this week. The latest Catalan feed report was released on Friday afternoon. Just a programming note here. If you'd like some specific analysis on that report, you can visit the website ruralradionetwork.com. I'll have some commentary there with Kyle Bumstead posted as an article. Up next, I'm sure the following phrase might bring back some memories for some of our viewers. I place this class of market steers 4213. Now, if you were like me, you learned the art of livestock judging through 4-H and FFA programming. Well, those skills can obviously play a, uh, can apply to farming operations when it comes to choosing breeding stock or perhaps culling some unproductive animals from the herd. There are many advantages for youth to participate in these livestock judging events. You can learn about all those advantages in the June issue of the Nebraska Farmer. Well, it is now time to check in when it comes to weather. Last week, I gave a premature thank you to Bill Boyer for his time hosting the Market Journal weather segments, but he's back with us this week filling in for Eric. Bill, thank you again for joining us, perhaps here on the final time. What are you watching, though, when it comes to weather in the week ahead? Well, first of all, anytime, Bryce. Love filling in for Market Journal and love being here with you. And We've got more of the same in the weather department, although there's maybe some signs that this week might be a little better to some areas needing the moisture. Look at the panhandle since we last spoke. Areas there south of I-80 actually out of drought conditions. We've got abnormally dry for a large portion of the region. The drought has uh, essentially come to an end in those areas. Not the case in central and eastern, especially east central through eastern Nebraska. A large swath of exceptional drought conditions, and that is because of a general lack of rain. Grand Island almost 7 inches, over 7 inches below normal in Lincoln, 6 inches in Omaha, 5 plus inches below normal in Norfolk. Those are areas that are parched for rain, not the case on the other half of the state. Scotts Bluff, Sydney, both almost 5 inches above normal. McCook at 7 inches above normal for the year. So a contrast of two sides of the state. Now the good news is we do have chances of moisture this week, several of them is again, we're going to see afternoon showers and thunderstorms, not every day. Uh, Monday, I think, uh, Sunday, Monday going to be fine. We'll start to Monday night into Tuesday, see some showers off in the panhandle again. And then I think this system, as it goes into Wednesday, maybe starts to get more of central and eastern Nebraska. And then uh, Thursday, and then especially with this system coming in towards the end of the week, maybe a little better chance there of seeing more moisture. And we hope that that is the case because uh, we need it in the eastern part of the state. As far as temperatures go, it really has uh, been two parts of the state on that as well. Cooler in the west, warmer in the east. That heat builds uh, throughout the week. We see 80s and 90s in the east, mostly 70s and 80s. A few 90s slip into the panhandle a couple of times, but generally speaking, it's much cooler in the west than it is in the east, and that moisture profile continues. But we can see here, over the next week, it looks like there's a possibility of getting some uniform precip across the state. As far as the next 8 to 14 days go, below normal temperatures in the northwest, above normal central and east. But this is encouraging. Above normal precip in the 8 to 14 days for the entire state, even better chances of above normal in the northwest. As far as the 30-day outlook goes, generally above normal and a few areas above normal for precip. And as far as the 90-day outlook goes, this takes us into mid-September now. Near normal temperatures, 
and a good chance of above normal precip in some of those areas that can use it. And hopefully that comes to fruition, Bryce, because, man, we could sure use the precip. All right, thank you very much for that update, Bill. Finally, today for many of us, irrigation season started early and it's been often this growing season. There are a few tips though when it comes to irrigation in season, irrigating in season, I should say, that we wanted to share with you today. We were joined in the studio by Nebraska Extension's Steve Melman to get some of his thoughts and suggestions. It's become a 10 letter curse word to some this uh, season. <laughs> Talking about irrigation today, I guess as you made the drive from Merritt County here to Lincoln to the Market Journal studio, what were you seeing out about? Lots of pivots, I have to assume, uh, running. Yeah, a lot of pivots and, and uh, you know, in Merritt County there's still a, lot, a fair amount of furrow irrigation and so a lot of guys out scrambling really fast and hard trying to get all that going and, and a lot of corn that's, uh, you know, knee high and, and looks more like onions than it does uh, corn. <clears throat> and so, yeah, it's being a real push to get things, everything going. Yeah, you can call it a lot of different things. I've heard pineapple corn. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the expressions <laughs> out there. I guess when it comes to that, it's obviously pretty concerning to see that here mid-June at this point. Have you done some research into how damaging the yield can be when you start to see some of that? Yeah, there's been quite a bit of research done, and, and sometimes you get some contrasting viewpoints on it, but for the most part, the things that I saw when I was out in southwest Nebraska was that, you know, you could have corn look like a lot of it does this year, and if you can get water on it with, and, and where we see that's in the furrow irrigation, because mm -hmm. really it's about now when you can actually get water on it, and, and it'll usually respond back and yield pretty much full yields, even though it's, it's stressed quite a bit. Um, you know, there's some other data that would suggest there might be some yield loss, but it's certainly not any, any means half the yield gone or anything like that. Now, if it starts to fire the leaves, you know, then we're getting into a little different territory. But, but yeah, you know, push and get the water on it, spread your water out. I mean, some people are saying if the, you know, if you have to shut the pivot down to do that, you know, early in the year like this, you know, shut it down and get the water on the furrow irrigation or, and, and, you know, keep it spread around. That's always going to end up with more bushels from the whole farm over the year. Maybe, Maybe it hurts the top yield on one part of the field, but you end up with more bushels from the whole farm by getting the water on everything. Well, this year, 2023, has been a challenging one from a number of different angles. Probably to start with, though, we came into this growing season. Everybody optimistic for the most part over the wintertime would be able to recharge these soils, and for most of us, that did not happen this year, did it? No, it didn't, and, and uh, you know, I think a lot of guys probably with their irrigation last fall uh, and, and the dryness, you know, left the fields drier than we typically would expect from the soil water data that I've seen, and, and then we just didn't get that. Typically, you know, we end up with enough uh, off-season precipitation, particularly just even in April and May, that we can refill those fields. You know, most of them only needed, you know, three, four or five inches uh, on the silt loams and of course the sandier soils less. But, uh, you know, we just didn't get it this year in a large portion of the state. Now, of course, there's parts that did and, and you know, more power to them. You know, they, they were pretty dry last year when you get to the western part of the state, but they've came out well this spring on, on rainfall. Here at Eastern Nebraska, it seems like those with irrigation, particularly pivots, have run them multiple times at mm. this point, I guess. Where do you see things from your perspective, <coughs> educating those across the state of Nebraska when it comes to irrigation this year? What kind of tips are you wanting to, to share with us? Well, I think that anytime we're irrigating in, in uh, you know, May and June, uh, even though we know that some of the fields are pretty dry, we, we've done a study with the, uh, looking at some soil water data from the upper big blue NRD, that's kind of the York and surrounding, that's the NRD that it's in. And, and basically, we've looked at some wetter years and some drier years, and, and it, it kind of shows that farmers tend to kind of do what they tend to do, you know. I mean, that's kind of all of us. We tend to get up, a, you know, on the same side of the bed and sit at the same place at the breakfast table. And, and irrigation is one of those that, that 
strategy just doesn't really work very well. And so last year, looking at the soil water data, we saw some guys still overwatered, but a lot of guys ended up leaving the field pretty dry, uh, kind of like we'd like to see them, you know, to where they're kind of in that range. We got full yields, but we used up the water. But then we just didn't get anything over the winter. And so I think, you know, to kind of answer your question, we just came into a very dry soils compared to where we usually are in our irrigated fields. And, you know, we needed to put water on here in, in May and June on some of the fields. But the challenge being, if we don't have some way to measure that with some soil water monitoring equipment, we just simply don't know whether this is a field that's wet enough and we really don't need to water or whether it is. And the challenge being, in particularly in June when we're irrigating, you know, we've got most of our nitrogen out there. And so if we overwater and leach some water through the profile, it's going to take that nitrogen with it. And, you know, nitrogen's pretty expensive. We really don't want it in our groundwater either. So we just need to be really careful irrigating in June. Uh, some fields are going to need it. Some are probably in pretty good shape. One of the points you you, you uh, mentioned too in a CrowdWatch article was leave room to capture potential rainfall events. Of course, that's putting a lot on some rain that we haven't seen in parts of the state. But tell me more about that that thought. Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, I live in Central City, and every every week, you know, towards the weekend, there are big chances of rain, and we get all excited, and then nothing happens. You know, and that's been kind of the the thing all spring. But you know, we got to be optimists. Someday it's going to rain, right? It may not be this year, but someday it will. And we certainly want to capture that. You know, that's kind of like the free refill at the restaurant. You know, we, we kind of like those. And so, um, you know, if we pump the water, particularly if we're in an area with allocations or, or a dropping groundwater level, you know, we just soon leave that water there if we can and, and utilize the, the rainfall. But, um, you know, if it's not coming, we need to take care of business. But we certainly, with our silt loam soils in particular, can leave room to hold some rainfall, some pretty significant rainfalls, in fact. All right, I want to give you the final word here uh, when it comes to irrigation, this exceptionally dry year for uh, a lot of our viewers today. What do you want to leave us with? Well, I think in a dry year, it does give a guy an opportunity to look at patterns. You know, if, if he's got a, a problem with center pivot, the dry areas will show up underneath the, the center pivot because we don't have rainfall to mask those out. So keep an eye on those. And I always encourage people every week uh, or two to take a, a look, just setting back and look at the sprinkler uh, pattern from, from the road, you know, when you can kind of see the gleam of the light off the water and make sure it all looks uniform, look for leaks, make sure the end gun's working like it's supposed to if you have one and, and uh, keep things tuned up because it looks like we're going to use it a lot, that, that equipment a lot this year. Thanks again to Steve for joining us this week. If you like some additional insights from Steve on this topic, we've included some informative links along with this story. You can find those over on the Market Journal website. Well, that is going to do it for this week's broadcast. Before we go, though, I want to remind you that Market Journal is on YouTube. You can watch our entire episodes on there. You can also follow the Market Journal team on social media to join in on the conversation. We hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskit, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.